Hello, Scuttlebutt listeners. I am uh, William. We are here with Vic. Hey. And today we are about going to start a new uh, writer series for the uh, Marine Corps Association. We are joined today by the chief editor of the Marine Corps Gazette, Colonel Woodbridge. Yep. Good, uh, good day, everybody. All right. So uh, let's just uh, go into it. Um, so this is uh, just uh, on background. Uh, this is sort of a, uh, a discussion uh, that grew out of some classes that I had been uh, been giving at different venues uh, uh, professional military education institutions, uh, Marine Corps University, those, those sorts of places. Um, the, uh, the title, uh, if you will, of what we're, what we're, uh, gonna, gonna walk the dog through this, uh, in this session is, um, it's about writing for publication, but it's, it's sort of called five things to know or five things you need to know about writing for publication. So by introduction, when we talk about writing for publication, this is very uh, specific in terms of its application. It's not general uh, uh, writing for publication anywhere. We're really talking about writing for publication in professional military, uh, professional defense-related uh, journals. It's so not for books. It is not for books, uh, although some of the things we'll talk about are, are very generally applicable to any sort of writing. Um, it's also not about uh, writing uh, in terms of uh, the work that many uh, military professionals have to do, uh, particularly when they get a little more senior in rank, uh, and that's what I refer to as staff writing. So it's not about writing uh, information papers, uh, staff studies, decision papers, uh, point papers or talking papers. Uh, it, it's not about those documents. Now, White letters. Exactly. Now, as we as we progress through this uh, uh, ongoing series on writing uh, in the Scuttlebutt uh, podcasts, uh, we will do episodes. We will do uh, uh, shows that talk about staff writing from a couple of different perspectives. That's and a skill all unto itself. It truly is. And, <laughs> and like a lot of things uh, that have to deal with uh, a broadly termed language um, writing, uh, it's a skill that is... Uh, perishable and has also atrophied a great deal in in the Marine Corps and in in all the services. Um, so the the ability to do those professional uh, uh, staff writing documents products um, is a unique skill set and again we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in uh, in subsequent episodes and we'll bring in some experts in that field uh, who have you know, are intimately familiar with the correspondence manual and, and uh, have done many, many uh, long nights and days writing these sorts of papers. Yeah, and I mean, it, it can be something as simple as know who you're writing for because certain p- staff leaders, if they see something more than two pages, not even going to bother looking at the thing. So even length, something as simple as absolutely. length. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, this is also, again, by way of intro, not necessarily about writing for um, other types of journals, for more general interest journals, um, for things that are really outside the the, uh, uh, the spectrum of, of military journals. So uh, we'll name some names. I mean, yes, we're obviously as the editor and publisher of the Gazette, publisher of Leatherneck. Those are those are our uh, our Marine Corps Association uh, uh, flagship publications. Um, this is also applicable to. Other military journals, the closest to us being the Proceedings of the U.S. Naval Institute. Um, sometime in the future, we may do some episodes specific to individual journals. So I can bring in the, the editors and some of the staff from Proceedings to talk about uh, T- TTPs or tactics, techniques, and procedures for writing for their magazine. For, uh, for military review, for strategic studies quarterly, for some of those other journals. But these are general rules of thumb, five things to know, uh, writing in that, uh, in that subject area. Um, and so the, the, the five no's, I used to sometimes call this presentation the five no's, K-N-O-W, not, not the negative. <laughs> Not the negative, but um, and it's sort of uh, built or, or relies on a reference to uh, the famous uh, famous aphorism or anecdote from uh, Sun Tzu in the Art of War: Know yourself, know your enemy, know the train and weather. Never fear, have victory in a hundred battles. Uh, so this is this are the five things you need to know, and uh, uh, the first starts with know your subject. Um, now that might seem 
no-brainer. It might seem intuitive. Of course, if I'm going to write about something, I'm going to write about something I know about. Um, that's not necessarily the case. Uh, sometimes you will uh, develop a professional curiosity in a subject. Uh, you'll want to write about it in some form or fashion. Uh, but you find that as you try to set pen to paper or, or fingers to keyboard, um, you don't know as much as you think. And you start developing more questions about the subject. This is a function of writing as learning. Uh, and it's when you when you take a step back and look at this from a a, uh, a macro level, from a metacognition level in the in the educational world, um, this is the real value of writing. Anything is that you are forced to learn things as you write. So it's a form of self-education. And you learn about what you actually know about. Exactly. And how much or how little. And in the the art of the profession is. Yeah. In that writing, because then you will start to see how little maybe you actually know about something, because the narrative is going to tease that out as That's you're trying to. And, and it and it peters out. You were hoping on <laughs> yeah. writing, you were hoping on writing, you know, ten thousand great words, and at about the 300, 400 word yeah, mark, you start <laughs> you start running out of things to write about. But the other part to this is it's, and it's sort of a subtext. Know your subject, but you also have to care about your subject. Because we're talking about taking time, expending uh, intellectual capital, intellectual energy uh, to do that extra work, that research, uh, in order to learn more about your subject so that you can get to those 10,000 or 5,000 good words. And on top of it, uh, when you write an article, you're going to be viewed as a subject matter expert on this particular topic you're writing about. And in the, in the professional world, when you submit to a journal, you're always open to responses and critiques and comments from other people on that who may, may or may not be equally knowledgeable on that subject as you are. So yet to be truly invested in it, it means to be able to defend your work beyond the actual piece itself, but in potential future responses or in conversations or discussions with other people. That's exactly right, William. You're, you're, you're setting yourself up as an authority when you write on something. So you probably, ought to, be, you probably <laughs> ought to be one. Try to, try, to, yeah. try to be that authority if that's how you're uh, touting yourself by publishing something uh, for, for everyone to look at. Uh, you know, if you if you really want to deliver that level of expertise, again, it takes effort. It takes time. You need to care about it to dedicate that effort and time. Uh, and a lot of it comes into uh, really the, the world of research, of, of finding out, of building your expertise, your authority in a subject area. And, and, and I don't want to chime in too much on this. I've only been in the chair for a few months now. But one of the things that I have seen uh, in my short time is, is that you can tell the subject matter experts because their narrative is crisp and they can go down rabbit holes, but it always loops back. And so it's not to say that like going on a tangent is bad. Sometimes it actually helps facilitate the narrative, but can you loop it back so that it makes sense for the reader and that you don't get us as the reader lost down that rabbit hole as you're going there. And you, that really, for well, me, has differentiated between the people who know what they're talking about and people who just sort of turning in a term paper. Exactly. Well, yeah, to, to comment on that statement, uh, like any rabbit hole you go down should directly reflect your the argument you're making, no no matter what. If you're going down rabbit holes that in no way correlate to what the yeah. point you're trying to make, then, or you don't ever come back to your or you, or you don't thesis. ever come back, then then yeah. that's irrelevant. It's it's pointless. Right, and that is, and you, you use the word thesis, uh, so that is a critical part of this type of professional writing. I'll talk a little bit more about it in the next uh, the next bucket, uh, the next section, the next no. Um, but but the other the other factor here, um, and this goes back to many other styles or genres of writing, creative writing, fiction, etc. Is you know write what you know. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Absolutely. even but even in that world, even in that world, uh, you know take a take a uh, uh, a noteworthy fiction writer uh, like Ernest Hemingway. People can point to biographical. Uh, vignettes from his life and tie those into the novels and short stories that he wrote. But they weren't just copies. Mm. He enhanced that experience. So yes, you write based on your experience, but you use your intellect and your imagination to enhance on that experience. Otherwise, what you often see in military journals and other other uh, 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 
platforms that are germane to our, our discussion here is what you kind of call the war story or the sea story. Yeah, there I was. There, there I was. And that's it. It's, it's, it's a more or less well-written narrative of what actually happened, just the events. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about how you can take that and build that into something of value as a, a professional article or essay or short piece. So the, the next no that, that gets into this is know what type of work you're, you're writing. In other words, what, what, uh, uh, are, are, you, are you writing an essay or a short piece or an article um, of a narrative or uh, uh, essentially expository flavor? Are you just telling a story? Um, and if so, how is that of value to other, other military professionals? Sometimes it can be a value from a purely uh, uh, retrospective or historical per, uh, perspective. This is a firsthand account of what occurred during the Battle of Marja from the perspective of a platoon commander in, uh, in 6th Marines. Okay, that has value, intrinsic value in and of itself as a, as a story, a war story. Um, but those expository essays or articles uh, for publication in, in professional military journals should have uh, a trailer on that truck, if you will. So, yes, it's the historic vignette. It's the firsthand account. Um, there I was. This is what I did. This is what happened. But what did you learn from it? And from those lessons, what's applicable to other situations that uh, Marines or, or other uh, service members, your readers, are facing now? All right. So the first category of, you know, what type of work, um, you know, some, some places you might call that a genre. I think that's a little uh, uh, excessive for these types of, of articles and essays. Um, is, is, again, that expository, sometimes called informational or narrative uh, type of essay. Uh, and it, it, again, is uh, in the uh, taking good into better or great category when it doesn't just lay out the facts and tell the story, but it relates that story to something uh, of value in the future. Uh, so that's, that's type one. Type two, that is probably much more common uh, is you know often referred to academically as argumentative or persuasive essays. So um, in other words, you are uh, trying to convince your readers, your audience um, of a position uh, that your your ideas, your recommendation, your proposal, your observations are the right ones. Uh, and so doing that, this is where, um, as we, as we talked uh, uh, a little bit ago, the thesis becomes critical. What really is your argument? What are you trying to convince your readers of? That becomes the goal or the objective. And then everything you do becomes the map that takes your reader to that conclusion. Yeah. Like Marine Corps needs to get, a, get widget X. We have widget A. Right. <laughs> I want you to believe that the Marine Corps needs widget X. And here's why. Now, what you're doing is an argument. Okay, the, the science or the, uh, uh, the theory uh, and science of argumentation goes back literally to the Greeks. Right? And there's lots written about it and there's lots of techniques. But it really boils down to two things. Um, to be successful, first of all, your, your argument has to be valid, meaning it has to follow certain rules of logic. Right. And the one, the one that's probably most uh, uh, important here, are understanding the difference between generals and specifics. You know, you can go from generalizations to specifics, but it's very, very, very hard and very illogical, dangerous to go from specifics to generals. Yeah. Uh, so, so understanding the logic and the validity of the argument is is essential. And then the second thing that's essential is. Um, Having true facts, true meaning verifiable in some form or fashion, and, and in many ways for, for uh, more junior or younger, less experienced military writers, understanding the difference between a fact and an observation or an experience and an opinion. So, so if you have a logical, 
valid argument and you have true facts, verifiably true facts, you have a successful argumentative or persuasive paper. Um, when you stray from those requirements, the argument becomes less uh, uh, persuasive, less valid. And actually, a good example of that relevant to the Marine Corps was when I was in my uh, senior college. We were, had to write your, uh, like your graduating thesis or whatever. And the example they made was like, um, hey, what sources are you using for a paper? And this one of my classmates was like, oh, I'm using, like, you know, studying, it was German history, so like German history under the Third Reich. She's like, okay, well, what, what books are you using? And like, oh, a bunch of these are written by, you know, people who were there, like Germans who survived World War II and like looked at it like, oh, all of these people you're citing, you know, were, were Nazis. The publication they, they were using was like, oh, all, if you look at all the books they pr published, they're all accounts from, you know, people like Nazis who survived World War II and so on. And like, okay, so maybe those are great for firsthand accounts, but if you want actual, like factual, maybe, you know, consider the biases going into that. Maybe want to look for another source that's more academic, published by an academic, you know, university institution as such that's been peer reviewed and actually, you know, has is a, has gone through these sources and pulled out the truth from them. That's uh, that's a great example. Another way to look at it, and and uh, again, we don't want to we don't want to dig too deeply into this or or make uh, too too strong a comparison, but it's it's almost like in many ways what uh, attorneys do. Um, when they are either prosecuting or defending a, uh, a criminal action. Um, William just confessed to us that he committed murder and that he's a Nazi. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's wow. very what interesting. Busy day. <laughs> that's very interesting in and of itself, but it would not stand up in a court of law right. because individual testimony, even a confession, yeah. while very compelling, still requires other proof. evidence, mm -hmm. proof in the legal world, corroboration. Um, one witness's testimony yeah. has to be corroborated by something other than another witness's testimony or 20 more witnesses' testimony. Even then, there has to be something else. And what uh, both in, in, in law and in, uh, in making argumentative essays or or that sort of uh, public, uh, public argument, um, empirically provable, verifiable facts are the coin of the realm. Uh, so testimony, opinion, even firsthand from someone yeah. there, verified by some other evidence uh, is, is critical. But even before that happens, that's, 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 uh, those are milestones or azimuth checks on the, the map that you're building for your reader as you lead them to this conclusion, as you lead them to what you want them to believe. Um, first, you have to start off, and this is, this is especially important in shorter works like Gazette articles, which are by, by definition fairly short in length, you know, 2,000 to 4,000 words. Get to the point as soon as possible. Don't make your reader, or your editors for that matter, dig through paragraphs and paragraphs of front matter and, and, and uh, background material or points of argument before you get to what you're arguing. So figure out what your thesis is, what it is you want your reader to believe, and lay it out there up front as early as possible. Yeah, you, you need to have some real estate on the page between your thesis statement and your conclusion. Yes. I think that just on first swag, if you're turning pages before you get to your thesis, and I'm not turning very many till I get to your conclusion, you need to do some restructuring of your argument. Not to say that your argument is invalid by any, any stretch of the imagination, but maybe think about it like Quentin Tarantino. Like, get us in medias res right off the bat, and then you can give us the context as yes. we're going through. That's, that's a great point and a, and, a, and a very great technique as well um, because it's compelling. It does draw the reader in. You know, we, we, we use the term getting drawn in or getting sucked in, whether we're talking about a, a series on Netflix or a book or anything like that. That, that has to happen. There has to be something compelling there. Um, otherwise, it gets pretty ponderous, and it's a lot like doing homework. Um, <laughs> One of the other, uh, uh, you know, in terms of how you get from uh, your thesis to your conclusion and what that conclusion tends to look like, um, 
two other two other tips here or TTPs. Um, first, regarding the getting to the you know the conclusion itself and what that looks like, the conclusion doesn't or should not necessarily repeat the thesis or the, but it sure should rhyme a lot. <laughs> it, it it sure should have the the, the pitfall that I would seek to uh, encourage people to in, uh, uh, avoid is making a new argument yep, in the conclusion. Yep, there it is. Yep, and, and I will, I will put myself on report for this because as an, as an undergraduate, I did precisely that with a, uh, uh, you know, a graduation or you know, senior level graduation uh, research project. And, you know, in the conclusion, I tried to draw some comparisons between, uh, uh, uh social movements in, in Japan in the 1920s and 30s as Japan became more fascistic and, and more uh, militaristic in terms of their government and their, and their society, um, and, how, and how that drew on uh, historical, cultural, social aspects of, of Japanese history, um, and draw a comparison to uh, 1979 and the Iranian Revolution and how what the Ayatollahs were doing was drawing on I hadn't talked about that at all up to that point. And yeah, unless your article is about comparing those two, that precisely don't do that. Precisely, exactly. Yeah. So, so that's sort of the pitfall there. the The conclusion doesn't have to be. You know, we're not we're not talking about. Uh, the, we don't want to reveal. Yeah, it's, it's not grade school yeah. or high school. Yeah, um, we're not talking. About, don't don't you don't have to just simply reiterate your thesis in your conclusion. Um, that is a teaching technique for very simplistic argumentative essays. But again, it needs to be consistent and it can't reveal new yeah, no arguments, reveals. new inference, yeah. no big reveals in the in the conclusion. It should reveal the significance of why you wrote all this in the first place. So the other the other in terms of all of this that you're writing, other TTPs and techniques for getting, you know, for building that map that gets your reader from from the thesis what you want them to, to believe. And then doing the convincing, um, uh, there are a number of different techniques. Analysis, meaning taking a large issue and cutting it into subordinate parts and examining each one of those elements as a separate section or paragraph of that larger uh, work, that larger essay, is a very good technique. But then you have to put Humpty Dumpty back together mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. in your conclusion. Yeah. Perfectly okay as long as what you... What, you know, the Humpty Dumpty you end with looks a lot like the egg you started with. <laughs> right. um, and if it doesn't, well, then you're kind of going back to bucket one, know your subject. You have to do more research. Maybe you've learned through analysis that your thesis isn't, isn't correct. That's good. That's learning in the macro sense. But unfortunately, as a writer, it's also a little bit of back to the drawing board or back, yeah, to, the, yeah. back your, to the keyboard. Your argument's a little shaky. Exactly. The other, the other technique there... Um, is, again, as a, as a follow-on or an adjunct to analysis, um, you, you basically use your thesis and through analysis develop an antithesis. So you focus on a counter-argument. In other words, from, from uh, Vic's example, the thesis, the Marine Corps needs widget X, and here's why. I take widget X apart. It has better this, more of that, less of that. There are those who believe that our current widget, widget A, is better. But when you look at this, yeah. it's more. This is less. It's more expensive. It doesn't work as well. That's, that's uh, sometimes referred to as thesis, antithesis, and your conclusion becomes the synthesis of what you found. Um, that's, and I think uh, that's what we were talking about earlier with the rabbit hole thing, is you can take us down the rabbit hole of what Gidget, pro-Gidget people like, but it has to loop back into why we need to be widget people. I wouldn't use right. the, ter- the term rabbit hole for that because, it, I mean, you, thinking, you know, strategically, you want to seize the initiative and try to counter those points before they're, they're brought Fair against enough, yeah. you. So, it, it, like, a lot of this, it actually, a good, a good like, you know, um, uh, part of your argument can be refuting yes. or, or, or yeah. preemptively refuting. That's correct. Criticism of your argument that that's correct and and again as part of that learning experience um you you need to use valid logical reasons to refute that counter argument to preemptively refute it you can't use logical fallacies you can't use what you hear very often 
throughout our uh, our media and our body politic, which is you can't attack the source. So, well, of course, those people think Widget A is better. They're all con- look at them. <laughs> look at them. They're all Nazis and 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 criminals. You know yeah. you, that you can't do that. That's not logical. That's not a valid argument. Um, but it gets used an awful lot. Um, the third, the third no, the third bucket we talked about a little bit, we started touching on that. That's know your audience, know your reader, know who's reading this article. And that, that applies on a couple of different levels. That applies sort of uh, uh, um, at the macro level, uh, understanding who, who you're writing for. Um, but there's, there's some very, uh, again, procedural, tactical parts to that. What, as a rule, prior knowledge can you assume in the people who are reading? Um, if that's fairly high, frankly, you can get away with a lot of things in the mechanics of writing at that point. If the prior knowledge level is assumed to be low to none, then there are things that you have to do both in terms of your, your argument, the structure of your essay, and in the mechanics of writing uh, because they don't have that prior knowledge. So uh, in terms of military professional writing, if you assume a higher level of prior knowledge, what can you get away with? You can get away with um, some some heuristics, some mental shortcuts, because you're writing to an audience with common education, common experience, that sort of uh, background. But at the at the uh, micro level, at the the technique of writing level, you can get away with jargon. Yeah, so you can get a, language. Yep, you can get away with um, terms of art with acronyms, with abbreviations, um, uh, and you can, you can sort of get into that uh, military, uh, quote-unquote, code-talking, vice-writing in good, concise, plain English. Um, you don't have to explain certain things because it's just you assume that's going to be commonly understood. Right. So in, in, you know, they, there's a very simplistic example. So writing in the Marine Corps Gazette, given the audience of the Marine Corps Gazette, um, it's fair to assume you don't have to spell out United States Marine Corps. You can say USMC. You don't have to spell out Marine Air Ground Task Force. We know what the MAGTAF is. Um, But once you start getting more uh, uh, arcane or esoteric in your references that are specific perhaps to one community within the Marine Corps yeah. and not the Marine Corps as a whole, then you should not start assuming prior knowledge. Yes, uh, agreed. And, and as an editorial comment, since we're all editors of one, one degree or another, you never go wrong with plain English nice. and clear, concise prose. Yeah. Or well, identifying well, first what your acronyms are. Yes, well, in basic rules of style as well. Yeah, and it, you know. we've had this discussion um, recently, actually. Like today. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, so if you're talking about anti-access and area denial weapon systems, don't kill me with the acronym on what the thing is. Just called it a guided missile cruiser, right. and we're good, but I don't need to know all of the things about the platform and then the anti-radar stuff that it all has in the acronym and the specific platform itself. That's a, a great point. But also, don't give a hand wave to A2AD. <laughs> right. There. Yes, actually. Because yeah. some of your readers yeah. are not going to know what yeah. that little term of art, that acronym, means. Uh, and it applies, again, in, in, in military journals, um, it, it applies uh, to so many different aspects because there are... Uh, there are doctrinal terms, precise language used precisely out there, um, that that may or may not need to be defined and explained in an essay or an uh, uh, or a, an article uh, for a broader audience. Um, so, see control, see denial. What do those actually mean in the context of the article? Again, given the level of the no- of prior knowledge in the audience, it's perfectly valid to define those sh- briefly. Again, without getting into uh, uh, you know the the uh, uh, excruciating detail of technical aspects of it, but to understand what those actually mean in the context of this article. Uh, and mm-hmm. so uh, that's that's a uh, a balancing act, uh, and that's 
uh, well, we'll we'll yeah. talk more about the importance of editing in papers uh, as uh, as opposed to writing papers. Yeah, I don't book. mean to belabor the point, but I do also want to say that for writers, we need to understand that language evolves, and in the military, it evolves very quickly. And so, something that you may use very commonly hasn't made its way down to maybe even the user yet. Like, I, I, we called them like Nas forever, but we were way past the Nas world. But there was just the common vernacular of the grunt. But yet, actual com people and optics tech people were calling it something way different because it was specific to their community and they could tell the difference between night vision devices exactly um so again how does that and this is back to williams williams point about tangents in writing um where do you strike that balance and where is sort of the uh the point of no return the culminating point that you don't want to go past in terms of introducing that detail uh, in other words, when does the rabbit hole become too deep? And now you've got to burn a lot of real estate and words to try to get back, yeah. back to that original azimuth yeah. because we a were, we, we, that's it. We were trying to convince people that widget X is the right answer for the Marine Corps. How far off that path, that, that, uh, uh, that trail of breadcrumbs that we've put out, how, you know, have we gone and how, how far do we have to go to get back? Um, that's that. And the further you go, the harder it is to mm-hmm. convince your reader. Sure. Um, so that's that's a part, knowing the reader, knowing the audience. The next no, the next bucket is is very, very closely related to that. However, it's not the same thing. And that is know, you know, the first is, you know, know who you're writing for, know your audience. The second could also be called know who you're writing for, but it's know your journal. Know the mm-hmm. publication. Know the, uh, the magazine, the, the newspaper. The, uh, the blog, the website, know who you're writing for uh, in that regard. Um, and what I mean by that is do a little more research, look at your customer, if you will, and look at what their mission is, what their vision for their publication is, read their publication and get a flavor for the tone, the length, the, the, uh, voice. Uh, the voice used in their articles. Um, and, and start to understand that as much as you can. Um, that also, again, plugs right back into who the readers are. Uh, you know, you can, you can look at the tone, you can look at the content of a journal and get a very clear picture of who they're writing, who they're publishing for, and who the writers are writing for. Um, what level of prior knowledge. Um, for uh, the Gazette and for many other journals, uh, and we'll do a, a subsequent uh, or a follow-up episode specific to this, they may have their own unique style guide. Uh, you know, they may, they may make uh, uh, statements that, yes, we use essentially the Associated Press style guide or the Chicago Manual or, or what have you, but many military journals have their own unique style guides that do cover things specific to that service and that journal. When are acronyms, you know, what acronyms are on the approved list? Mm-hmm. Um, what acronyms need to be really spelled out? Um, and, and that does change over time. It does evolve. And, uh, and most journals do uh, try to update that as much as, as much as they can. Also understand the difference between a, you know, a style guide and writer's guidelines. Those are, mm, those are two yeah. different things. Style guide is, is again, um, use of language, mechanics, grammar, punctuation, uh, uh, an overall style for uh, for uh, writing and and other pieces of writing, how to do citations, how to do foot and end notes, how to write a bibliography. Those are all laid out in very standard form in in a style guide. Writers' guidelines are different from that. Writers' guidelines are about preferred length of different types of articles, feature articles, uh, book reviews, etc. You know, how long? How many words? Um, uh, writer's guidelines are more uh, often technical. Um, what sort of uh, file formats are required? What font to use? How many spaces? Um, you know, will we accept it as just an email? Those sorts of things are in the writer's guidelines. Know both of those for the journal, the platform that you're using to, uh, to communicate with. This, relating back to Sun Tzu, is kind of the closest thing to understand the terrain, terrain and the yeah. weather. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the environment that you're in. Um, 
you can go further as well. Understand, uh, for a lot of journals, understand their editorial calendar. Mm. That touches everything from when things are due, you know, when, when writers' deadlines are, when actual hard publication deadlines are. Um, but it also touches things as, uh, such as thematics for a monthly journal or a quarterly journal. Are they trying to uh, uh, collect uh, material, articles, uh, essays, book reviews in a certain subject area at a certain time of year? Uh, for example, U.S. Naval Institute proceedings. Every, uh, almost every month, at least, at least half of their editorial calendar Monthly magazines are dedicated to Navy communities, surface warfare, submarine warfare, aviation warfare. November is always the Marine Corps. It's when the Marine Corps' birthday is, and they are part of, we are part of the Naval Service. For the Gazette, we have a similar thematic year uh, that touches uh, uh, various months. That's always published. Know it. Find it. Know it. And if you have questions, contact the journal and, and find out. Uh, open a line of communication as part of getting, you know, firsthand intel on your environment of what you're writing in. Um, you can go broader than that as well. If you're, if you're really, uh, again, go back to the caring side, uh, if this is really something that you feel passionate about, uh, start to learn about the industry too. Absolutely. Uh, and then I was going to mention that is, is that when writing for the Gazette, um, you're going to be afforded certain liberties that other national uh, publications aren't going to afford you. And so understanding that who you're submitting to is so important because if you're looking for something big, let's just call it the Atlantic, they're looking for way like they're screening to disqualify. Yes, that's correct. And so if you like already, if your style is not in line with what they got, you're, you're gone. If they have said, hey, we're looking for open submissions, but we're not accepting pros, and you send them a narrative, you're immediately out. Like, no one's even going to take a look and make sure it was worth the damn. They just want to get – they want to whittle it down so their staff isn't overloaded with stuff that's already not going to be accepted. That's exactly right. Understanding when you you mentioned the staff, many national journals – um, have both an editorial staff and a creative staff and a writing staff. Yep, so yep. submitting from the outside means that you are competing, competing with, her staff with those writers. with their yeah. staff writers, mm-hmm. and in some ways you're taking food out of their children's mouths. Uh, if uh, again, if you're if you're writing for a journal that pays for content, yep. know that right up front. Uh, so the the Gazette does not have staff writers. We don't have a. Uh, you know, a force design innovation desk officer here writing articles on those subjects. All the content in the Gazette comes from Marines, uh, comes from uh, Marines involved in the field or in PME schools and, and taking the either either taking the initiative to write or writing as part of an academic requirement. Um, and as such, uh, we don't pay for content. Uh, we don't we don't uh, compensate those authors. Um, so again, that's about knowing the journal, knowing your specific environment, and also knowing a little bit about the industry. And, and when you start to talk about the industry, capital I, broad magazine publishing industry, uh, you know, it's a world unto itself. Yep, it yep. truly is, and it's um, super cutthroat. <laughs> it it, it <laughs> is, and also, but it's also an economy of management piece. I mean, the fact is, you lay out guidelines of what you're looking for in a given month, um, and if something comes in that's outside that editorial profile, you don't have the time to waste to look at it. Mm-hmm. You may file it away and say, okay, making a a note, some some form of administrative tracking that when and if you do start looking for something like that, here here we go. Uh, but you know that applies. Yeah, the Atlantic, uh, New Yorker, yep. uh, New York Magazine, uh, uh, all of them, all of them that are national distribution uh, uh, journals, uh, kind of outside the niche markets of you know men's fitness and those sorts <laughs> of things. There are um, uh, you know, some real nuances to work in there. The other part being is they're paying you for your work. They want what they want, and they want it when they want it, and it it, it really can't suck. Um, Writing for uh, the more niche market military-specific journals, for those who are really passionate about it, can be an educational and a development experience going towards that other side. Um, But again, you're 
you're competing with those who have chosen that as their profession, vice those who are doing it as part of their military profession. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so very different things there. Um, so that's the fourth no. The fifth no uh, is 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 probably the area where, um, when I've done this as a sort of a classroom or or a, a, you know seminar or sign of form, this is where where people really start uh, you know taking notes at times, and that's know how to improve. Mm know how to improve and this gets very very broad but there's two main areas there know how to uh, improve the specific piece that you are working on and then know how to improve more generally as a writer so in the first in the first area know how to specifically how to improve the piece the essay the argumentative essay uh, to convince people that widget a uh, is bad and widget x is the direction the marine corps should go um Obviously, once you've once you've done all the other boxes, once you've gone through knowing your subject, doing the research, collecting all that, knowing what what your, your argument's going to be, developing a thesis, you actually got to write the paper. And a blank piece of paper or a a cursor on a blank computer screen is one of the most intimidating, frustrating, aggravating things in the world to deal with. So the cure, a cure, and answer to that is. Get words on the page. Yeah. They don't have to be perfect. They don't even have to be good. Heck, they may not even be spelled correctly or, can hear, or coherent, and you get all those you know, on a computer screen, all the little red lines underneath things. Get something down there. Don't go back and start correcting it immediately. Get as much as you can, 500 words, 700 words, 1,000 words down, and walk away from it for a while. So write, and then write some more, and then edit, and then edit some more. It's an iterative process. There is no one and done. So on your own time, for yourself, write, 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 get all the words out of your head and onto the paper, and then go back and edit. And then edit again yourself. I, I say at least two times, just yourself. But that's, that's not the end of it. Next, get someone else yeah. to read and edit. Um, and I'd like to say that could be anyone, um, but it probably can't be just anyone. Uh, Definitely vet who you're going to have review. Like have someone, you know, if you have a friend you went to college who's an English major or someone you know who writes, go to go to them, someone professionally involved. Um, definitely consider strongly who you who you have. Uh, yes, over. in your corner. Your corner man needs to be needs to be competent needs to understand the fight that you're in, what you're trying to do, um, and needs to know something about the subject. Um, and have if, some writing chops. Exactly. Yeah. So if you can't get that level of knowledge of the subject you're writing about, I would recommend opting for what Vic just described, is someone who you know knows how to write, um, who you've read, you've read things that they've written, whether professionally or not, published or not. Get that sort of person as your your first what I'll call uh, a corner man editor, your in-house editor. Recognizing that when you submit to a journal for publication, it is going to get edited again. However, if you don't take those internal steps first, it may not make it into the editing process. It may, in fact, be not accepted for publication if it's just too rough. Yeah. Um, how does it wind up being too rough? Um, You'll hear in some frankly, academic writing programs or some advice columns about writing, um, write like you speak. I would encourage people not to do that. <laughs> not to do that. Um, the, way you, the way you speak is fundamentally different from writing. It yeah. really is. And, and, and the way you speak is far more subject to misinterpretation than the written word for you know. sure and and just understand that the way that you speak when it's on paper does not look like the way that you speak that's exactly right because <laughs> like, a conversational tone for a reason i would uh that's exactly right and i would also say uh as an adjunct to that you know no don't write like you speak but do read what you have written out loud no, for sure. Oh, absolutely. You absolutely yep. have to do that. Yep. Even as, as a creative writer, that is so It's critical. exactly right. It's absolutely right. So 
you know, once you've gone through the right, 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 you've gotten all the words out of your head, you've edited it once or twice yourself in that process of editing, internal, you know, self-editing, uh, read it out loud. Read it out loud at least once. Um, there are many ways to, to build on that value. Uh, read it out loud and record it and then listen to it. Mm, that's a good one. Yeah. Read it out loud into a mirror and kind of, you know, just have that little bit of theater there. Read it out loud and have your editor, somebody, your internal, your corner man, listen to it and then give it to it's them. It's shadow boxing. It is. It's sure. exactly like, what it is. You're looking at your form, your technique as you're That's going right. through the ones, twos, and threes. Yep. Yeah, I, I'll say just as a nuance to that, sir, is, is that you can write as you speak to avoid that blank page that just sucks creativity out of your body. So if you need to get it down. Yep. You can write colloquially, understanding that it's going to make your editing process harder, but it will also get something on the page in a way that you can clearly, if that's the way, if that helps you articulate your argument, get it down, get it out there. So it doesn't have to be understanding that editing, writing and editing are completely different worlds that you, and you have to do both. So you're wearing, you're basically doing two jobs when you put together a, yes. an article, essay, short story, even a book. Your, your editing process is completely different than your writing. Even if you merge the two together, like you take a break, go back and edit, take another break, but you're never doing them sequentially. Or you're never doing them simultaneously. That's right. It's got to be sequentially. And it's a real pitfall. Yeah. Um, and frankly, the uh, uh, you know, Microsoft Word, you know, great software, um, but some of the autocorrect and autogrammer functions on it uh, basically lead you into that pitfall mm -hmm. because they uh, encourage you uh, to to combine, I would say, really three activities. To combine writing with proofreading with editing. And, and it's also important to recognize the difference between proofreading and editing. Yeah. Proofreading, as it would say, is is focused on Grammar, punctuation, style, and the mechanics. Getting those little red lines to go away <laughs> in some form or fashion. And also not falling into some of the autocorrect traps. Um, you know, there and there. You may be using precisely the wrong word yeah. spelled correctly. The absence and in the of red does not mean you're good to go. Precisely. <laughs> precisely. Um, but the other, the other piece to that. The difference, as you say, between writing and editing. Editing is, as the name's, it's editing for content, mm -hmm. for meaning, absolutely, for the argument. Again, editing is making sure in an argumentative essay that that breadcrumb trail from your thesis through all the proof down a rabbit hole or two, maybe acknowledging an antithesis and getting to that conclusion um, is as tight and logical and easy to follow for the reader as possible. In a, uh, in a narrative or uh, informational expository type essay, it is the flow of that narrative, however you're doing it, whether you're using some form of chronological progression, uh, <laughs> stream of consciousness. Uh, uh, I hate, you know, Quentin Tarantino guy, Richie style, where we really don't know where we are in time at any given point, but making sure that that works yeah. um, in terms of the message you're trying to send. There I was, this is what I did, this is why it matters now, and this is what you can learn from it. Tying that breadcrumb trail together in that style of that type of essay is the point behind editing. Um, the other piece there that is an, an editing function, again, in these types of writing, because particularly in the argumentative essays, you are introducing proof, you are introducing evidence, um, are your sources accurately uh, uh, accounted for? Um, you know, just because you say it, or just because you say somebody else said it doesn't make it true, there needs to be some uh, paper trail behind that. Mm -hmm. um, a word on that paper trail, again, on how to improve the specific piece. Uh, there's there's probably another episode that we uh, can talk about research and citing sources and yeah. how to use that. Um, but I'll, I'll kind of broaden it out a little bit uh, in, a, in a brief touch on understanding 
the public domain and understanding where you have to cite things. Uh, again, that's that's not uh, rocket science. There's it's 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 kind of basic entry level uh, research and writing. Um, but uh, if you fail to do those things, if you fail to first educate yourself and understand when you can quote something, when you can't, when uh, recapitulating or changing the wording of uh, a given statement is not in fact creative writing or your unique work, it is plagiarism, um, is, is critical. And it's, it's uh, something that puts you as an individual in jeopardy, something that puts the publication in jeopardy. It applies to written work and ideas. It applies to visual imagery. It applies to just about anything on the internet. So once again, rule of thumb, just because something is on the internet or on Wikipedia does not mean it's public domain and free for anybody to use. Um, it's, it's free for anybody to read, to learn from, but not to put into a, uh, a written work that's going to be published as your work. So that's, that's what, you, what you're doing and what you, the, uh, the pitfall you fall into there is essentially stealing other people's ideas. Yeah. And it's just not, it's offsides. It can't be done. If I can add one other nuance to this, sir, uh, is revision. So you've got your writing, you've got your editing. There is a skill. Now, granted, rev- revision is a, much, is a much larger task in book writing, for example, um, and articles, maybe not so much, but I will give an example. Um, some of the things that I've seen in this chair is, so as you said, sir, you're in the argumentative article, argumentative essay. You're you've made you've got a thesis, and you're now supporting that thesis with facts. Try to avoid using rhetorical questions, and the reason I mentioned this as part of revision is um, so if. You're reading a a four-page article, and I've got half a dozen or more rhetorical questions. As an editor, we're probably going to come back to you and say, hey, is there a way that you can make these definitive statements rather than putting the onus on the reader to make the argument for you? Because, and again, it goes into all these things you said, um, know your audience, know who the readership is. If you're making rhetorical questions as if it's insider baseball, so if you were to say, like, why wouldn't you want Widget X in your arsenal? If you haven't made the argument of what Widget X even is, you've already lost all your readers because they're like, I'm hoping that you would tell me this. Like, your article says we need Widget X. I'm reading it to figure that out. If you start throwing out a bunch of rhetoricals, it puts too much onus on the reader, and like you were saying, sir, reader's probably just going to check out. Yes. And you'll never actually get to the part where you actually make your point. And so where revision plays into this is when you go through your editing and you see some of these flaws, either you didn't completely connect the dots in your narrative or there was a rabbit trail that you never were able to dig out of or there's too many rhetoricals, now you need to know the skill on how to now revise it so that you all of those – that Rubik's cube becomes, you know, six-sided again or whatever. No, that's the, the, so. So the questioning technique um, is is a very useful and valid technique in education. In in in, in a, limited quantities. <laughs> it, it, well, it can be limited, but it can also be the core of a of an educational of a. Uh, 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 a pedagogic style. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay gotcha. the Socratic method yep. by, by legend, Socrates taught an illiterate slave the Pythagorean theorem just by asking a series of questions. Right, so that's that's the core of the Socratic method. That works in seminars, in classroom settings, etc. It does not. It does not lend itself to written pieces. It turns into rhetorical questions, uh, which you know, are, are like, you know, now we're going to, now we're going to use a, a comparison or a metaphor or simile, you know, they are, uh, and which is it a metaphor or simile? If I say a rhetorical question is like the strongest spice in your, in your spice cabinet. Because it uses, yeah, we Jesus. keep our shots well, for the God. day. <laughs> well done. I'm going to let you graduate. Um, <laughs> that is using like, so it is a simile, but it is, you use it in very small quantities. 
and you use it for a specific reason, you know, you, you want to accomplish something by using a And it's got to be universal. That's right. You can't say, why wouldn't you want Widget X? You can say, why wouldn't you want your food to taste delicious? Yes. <laughs> like everybody wants to get that. That's fairly universal. Yep. So, you know, there's an interesting uh, uh, analogy that, that uh, uh, I, I learned uh, many, many years ago. So, you know, revision in writing is like translation when you're speaking the same language. So when you're a translator, when you're working from another language, um, there's basic translation where you just have the meaning of the words on the page. That's not the way a finished translated poem, uh, uh, prose piece, right. narrative works. Um, you know, um, uh, my, my example of that comes from translating Chinese. And when you look at, circling back again to our quote from Sun Tzu, when you read the meaning of the characters themselves, what you get out the other end um, is uh, so different from prose English. So the characters themselves, you get no self, no enemy, no weather and terrain, 100 battles, all victory. That's all those characters mean. To turn that into English, American English prose or Russian requires a higher level of revision in order to make it flow. Um, and each one of those words have different interpretations. Mm -hmm. Hundred battles, all victory, all conflict, nothing to fear. You'll see it translated that way depending on really sort of the, uh, the, the, the genre or the audience or the platform that that translator is writing for. That's when you're bridging from one language to another. When you're working in the same language, your own writing, mm -hmm. you're translating your own writing for the audience in the journal you're writing for. It makes perfect sense to you. You wrote it. Looks good when it left here. That's not who you're writing for. Right. You're not writing for yourself. Um, so those are those are some basic. Uh, the other one. Well, let's 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 hit this one again. Get to the point. All right. Get <laughs> to the point. Get your thesis up front. Make sure your conclusion is consistent with that. Paint a very clear trail, a good breadcrumb trail for your reader, knowing who that is and how much they like breadcrumbs and, and know where they're going already um, to get there. That's how you improve the specific piece you're working on. Um, what else contributes to this is building what I'll call general proficiency, how to become a better writer, period, um, of, any, of any style of writing, any type of work, how to, how to make it easier the next time you're writing a specific article. Um, some people, some writers say, it's like doing push-ups. You need to write more. Write, 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 write. Um, that's true, um, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But from, from what I had learned, my experience is the best way to become a better writer is to read. Read more. Exactly. Is to read more. Thank you. Um, and there's a lot of different reading that you can do, but all of it helps. Pretty much all of it even helps. Bad, even, even bad, bad writing bad, helps. Exactly. Read bad writing. Yes, exactly. Um, and by, by bad, I don't mean, yep. I mean badly written, not necessarily, you know, a subject that you don't right. like. Right. Yeah, if you're not uh, a yeah, romance. Yeah, don't force <laughs> yourself. I am going, I am going to read this bodice ripper if it kills me. Um, oh, you know, Victor the, Cortez, why can't uh, you just marry her already? Yeah. Large, large print <laughs> romantic, pro, you know, fiction, no. Um, but something that you, something that you uh, uh, appreciate, that you like, even if it's badly written, Learn you learn things from that. So yes, books, periodicals, magazines. Also, there's an awful lot written out there about writing. Um, some of it's some of it's actually very valuable, um, and I think we'll we'll probably have a, an opportunity to do another another show just on that. But it doesn't mean reading uh, the Chicago Manual of Style as your as your you know your daytime nighttime reading that will. That will crush you. Yeah, that's, um, that, 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 that's like it's, you'll never write again. As, <laughs> as valuable as it is, and it's yeah, incredibly right. valuable. It's also a tool. a tool. Exactly, it reads a lot like stereo instructions. And kind of so. like we mentioned earlier, if you're writing for a particular journal organization, read what they're putting. And, yes, and and, and just and you, it, feel free to, not just to steal content, but to steal styles, steal voice. how they voice, how they write sentences, how they formulate arguments, and and ref, or or. Uh, Thesis is an antithesis. So, no, you're absolutely. You, the The other point is there are uh, also 
great periodicals about writing. Um, and again, I, I can't begin to scratch the surface of how many different TTPs, tactics, next niche, and procedures, how many different uh, 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 nuanced uh, little tips come out of those sorts of journals. Uh, you know, the, what's the difference between screenwriting and playwriting? Yeah. Um, you know, how to tighten up your logical arguments. They're, they're, they're really valuable, and they're, they're generally very well-written and quick reads. Well, if I can promote friend of the show, Andy Milburn. Yes. If you like When the Tempest Comes, read Andy Milburn's stuff. He's all over the place. Go yep. into Task and Purpose. Right. Go into read. Small what, Wars Journal. Small Wars Journal. Yep. Exactly. So if you like this stuff, if you like their style, you like their voice, read their stuff. Yes. Don't not not from a perspective of trying to copy or be a you know be a uh, 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 try to mimic that style, but to learn how they do things. Um, so yes, read, 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 and read some more. Yeah. Um, like read the, as much as you can. The saying goes like you speak and act like the like you know the five closest people to you. Likewise speaking, you're going to write like the like the people you read. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, so yes, you do need to write too. You, you you know write it is it is a um, a cognitive uh, pattern recognition muscle memory thing that benefits from reps and sets like any other sort of uh, yeah. uh, skill. Um, so how do you do that? So there are there are a couple of different uh, techniques that that uh, have been recommended, and you know I've I've used these and other people I know writers like like. Annie Milburn have used these over the years. Um, so one of them is to keep a journal. Yep, journaling. Yep, yep. journaling is a, is a skill unto itself, uh, so that it doesn't turn into you know your diet and your exercise program. <laughs> you know, hey, what? How many laps did I do back? Then? Um, you know, that that's that's a pitfall of journaling. Um, so there are, I mean, I know for a fact that there are uh, classes and and uh, instruction specifically in how to journal. At its core, what it is, you're writing. You're forcing yourself, you're giving yourself a habit of writing. Uh, the other one, and, and okay, I date myself a little bit here, I'm, you know, of a certain age, letters. Actually writing letters to other humans. You can type them out, you can write them longhand, it doesn't matter. But I'm not talking about emails, I'm not talking about text messages, 140 no characters. I'm not talking about Twitter, I'm talking about actually writing a letter. It doesn't have to be... You know the, uh, the 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 Mary Todd Lincoln twenty page <laughs> longhand sort of thing. It it can be short letters, but again, it's another technique, another uh, little little tactic to uh, force yourself, discipline yourself to do the activity of writing. Again, thinking. You know, well, if you could just look at uh, empirical. Oh, I guess not empirical for me, but the evidence. Looking at old Civil War letters home. Is such a huge difference between what the stuff that you would see oh, tweeted yeah. out from guys that are in the field now. I mean, you know, like dearest Beauregard, today's you know, they, just, yes. just the prose yeah. and the language is so dense and so that's right. Wonderfully I don't know crafted. What letters you read and the ones I read like are half of them are spelled wrong. Probably, probably from the south. Well, maybe spelling, maybe spelling go to was museums. Yeah. that they yeah. only put the good stuff out. Well, and it, it you know this this specific topic circles back around to. Uh, uh, you know, to a, the very first no, know your subject. When you do that research, when you're doing it properly, you will find yourself in primary sources. Eventually, you're going to be reading Mary Chestnut's diary about, you know, her views on what was happening in, in, uh, in the Civil War. Uh, you know, there's a reason that Ken Burns's Civil War is so compelling at points is because it's directly reading from that woman's diary, that her journal. Uh, again, a skill at that time that was uh, yep. something that, that many people did. You can see the same sort of, uh, of capability of using language uh, in the Gazette. Uh, back in 2016, we published the 100th anniversary edition of the Gazette. The process of doing that was research back to the original articles in 1916. And from the period of 1916, really up until the end of World War II, the writing, frankly, as plain English prose, was so much better. And it didn't matter who was writing. These were you know, future commandants, generals, but they were captains, they were lieutenants. 
And it seems to the to the external observer of the, that material that everybody in the Marine Corps, at least the officer corps, could write well at that time. After World War II, beginning of the Cold War, things started to creep in, and it's not unique to the Marine Corps or the military service. It goes to language across our, our country. But uh, again, and I'm not a uh, you know I'm not a luddite. I'm not suggesting that we have to burn all the computers and you know go back, but. But, but writing uh, does require practice. Yeah. So look for opportunities to practice uh, beyond writing articles and those sorts of things. Work it into your, uh, you know, your battle rhythm, your daily life. And there are ways to do that. Um, there are other tools and resources available as well. Uh, and that's the other kind of the last piece of you know, how to get better as a writer. Uh, cast your net wide and look for... Uh, those uh, resources that can help you, you know, beyond the books, beyond the specific periodicals on the subject, look for uh, uh, online tools. There, there are many that we've, you know, we've talked about internally here to the Gazette that make make the jobs of writing, researching, editing, uh, spell checking, etc., easier and more efficient. Cast that net wide, but also cast your net to other humans. Yep. Discussion groups. I say there's work. There's <sighs> workshops all over the place. If you want to Google, exactly workshops. If you're in the National Capital Region, just hit NCR. And there are there are other organizations. Yeah. Uh, you know, Military Writers Guild, uh, a Company of Military Historians. There are lots of other. Uh, uh, if you're in a college town, you can audit classes. Exactly. Exactly. There are other uh, resources out there, and. Uh, you know, shameless, you know, paid uh, self self promoting announcements. Here, here in the association and and uh, and with the Gazette, uh, we're going to be building that sort of capability. We are looking to develop that community of marine writers, war fighting experts who uh, who write for this professional journal and and others uh, as part of that community of interest. Uh, again, with a with the idea of of making resources and making that uh, that environment available to as many Marines as possible. Uh, and so this is, and, and, and friends of the Corps as well. Um, so uh, that's, that's the five buckets, the five things to know. Um, there are more. Every, every one of these uh, uh, specific uh, subject areas, all five of them, uh, could easily turn into its own discussion. Absolutely. And having just come out of a graduate level program, these things are talked about. Yes. Um, so uh, yes. this isn't. We're not just shooting from the hip, or we're not just pulling. You know, dusting off archives. Yes. This is this is what writers are talking about. Exactly. And uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna continue to keep this uh, uh, this discussion, this dialogue going. We're gonna offer additional resources, and uh, you know, we'll try to uh, again build that community, create that uh, that interest. Uh, we circling back around. We talk about the. Uh, uh, the major, you know, major national publications and how cutthroat they are. That's another benefit of writing for the Gazette. We are, we're not as cutthroat. Our barriers to entry uh, are much lower than someplace like the Atlantic or the New York Magazine. Um, but you're going to get some outstanding feedback. Yeah. You, get, you get great editing work. You get great feedback. And we kind of focus it on how do we make you better mm-hmm. uh, for no other reason than we hope you write more for us. Yep. And then you write better each time you yes. submit to us. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, anyways, thank you, uh, Scuttlebutt listeners, for tuning in. Uh, well, This is the first in a series for uh, for our writer's uh, guide. Um, all opinions, thoughts, as educated as they are, are our own and not reflected of the Marine Corps Association, Department of Defense, or other government entities. Thank you very much. Bye. <laughs>